90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Glad we avoided all that severe weather tonight. Yeah, you know, last night, just south of here, we had an inch and a half to three inch hail. Yeah, I saw that there were Arkansas storm reports, and I was like, oh, no. (laughs) So that's lucky. Um, Were there there some tornadoes, too, last night, right? Yeah, down by Fort Smith, there were some tornadoes. Uh, You know, we'd already done the the plan of like, okay, what awning are we going to go drive our cars to? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Understand that. Yep. Uh, But no, we missed it too. It's been pretty lucky, though. I don't know if we'll be so lucky later this week. There's a pretty solid chance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's that time of year, right? It is. uh, It's... Severe storm season, it's jacket in the morning, short sleeves in the afternoon, jacket in the evening (laughs) kind of weather. Um, I'm still trying to transition to summer beers, but I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) Okay, not quite there yet to the summer beers. Um, I'm embarrassed to stay. I still have some summer shandy from last summer left over in my refrigerator. (laughs) It's still flavored water right Mm-hmm. yep sure is <laughs> so what are you what are you imbibing in the springtime what's your springtime beer <laughs> so it's still pretty dark uh but currently i am drinking the new providence brewing strawberry milkshake hmm strawberry milkshake beer <laughs> Yep, the description is sour ale brewed with strawberries, vanilla, and lactose. So milk and beer together sound like the grossest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so we actually use a lot of lactose in my beer recipes. Do you really? Is that, I mean, yeah, we I'm do. assuming that's the sour part, right? Uh, it can be, but it's not necessarily, you know, like our, um, our winter warmer that we made this winter had a lot of lactose in it, and it wasn't sour at all. Damn, that is uh, interesting. Yeah, milk stouts obviously have a lot of lactose in them, and they're not mm-hmm. sour. So I feel like I, I used to drink a lot of dark beers, and I feel like in the last like five years or so, I'm done with them. I can't tell you the last time I had a Guinness. See, this is shocking to me, because we would always go <laughs> to the, the pub on the corner and get Guinness and lunch. And, I know. I yeah. don't know what happened. Yeah, I'm all American pale ale all the way. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you? What? Was that too much? <laughs> are you leaving me? <laughs> I mean, are, are are you straight Pabst Blue Ribbon now? Or? Oh, don't you dare! <laughs> Dale's pale ale. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, so expensive PBR. <laughs> Pabst. Ugh. Ugh. I don't know. Maybe I like it now. Actually, I haven't had it in 10 years. <laughs> right. Uh, and I don't know. I just, I, I can't do hoppy things still. See, and I, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the sours. I'm not going to say I dislike them all. Um, but yeah, the the malty, I don't like malty. Interesting. Because 
I know. It's what we used to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about like your beer palate evolving and mine apparently staying stagnant for the last decade. <laughs> maybe I just need to try some maybe I need to try some of your beers and it'll get me back in the well, dark beer wagon. <laughs> Maybe I, I've got one right now that I, I bought from a local brewery, not not in Siloam, but in northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And I bought the six pack of it because I don't understand it. <laughs> and I've had several of them now uh, over the last few days. The best way I can think of to describe it is, you know, that burnt electronic smell? <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> So that's what it smells like. Oh, what? <laughs> the first hit from it is like a salty lemon. Oh, okay. This is okay. Yeah, so I'm really selling it, right? Yeah, completely. Uh, Can't wait. You know, this is this is all in the first like half a second. <laughs> and then it becomes this really kind of awesome. I don't even know how to describe the taste. That's part of what I'm trying what? to figure out. <laughs> And after you swallow the beer, it tastes like you have a mouthful of almonds. This is so strange. That okay. is exactly why I bought a six-pack, and I cannot figure it out. I need somebody that knows a lot more about <laughs> beer to help me. You need to get a small yay. <laughs> what is, yeah. I mean, surely there's a beer equivalent of a small yay, right? Like, I'm sure there is. We, you know, we have a local brewer here in town that... Uh, I'm hoping if I take some down to him, he can help me decode what is going on in this beer. <laughs> oh, see, I knew Wikipedia wouldn't feel me, fail me here. A beer sommelier, also called a Cicerone. A Cicerelli? Cicerone. Cicerone. Okay. Maybe it's Cicerona, but I doubt it. I think it's just Cicerone. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I knew, of course, they had to have a beer sommelier, right? Like, that had to be a thing. Yes. How many hundred thousand times has that been Googled today across the world? Um, There's an interesting statistic. God, I really want to know. <laughs> yep. Here's your cis, yeah, Cicerone. That is how it's pronounced. Certification program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can become a master well, Cicerone. Well, I think this would even stump a Cicerone, but uh, <laughs> I... I'm still drinking. I'm trying to figure it out, and I won't quit until I do. That is so interesting. Okay, I can't wait to, I can't wait to have that one. Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, obviously, your brain's always wanted to categorize stuff, right? It's true. You know, I'm trying to say these are winter beers, spring beers, hoppy beers, sour beers. Uh, why not do the same thing with uh, deltas? <laughs> <laughs> God, is that our worst segue we've ever had? <laughs> it's pretty close. It had to be. <laughs> we should put together a whole show of just segues from chit-chat <laughs> into science. <laughs> well, I've got to bring it back from last week because the stinger on last week's show was so great about the, the turd bedite segues. So. <laughs> Why do you have to start? Don't remind me. I told so many people that. And I think my uncontrollable laughter while telling it made it not as funny to other people. But <laughs> right. I couldn't help it, and I'm not sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so shockingly, we haven't talked about deltas at all. <laughs> I thought... Well, I mean, <sighs> if sedimentary rocks are boring, deltas are, like, pre-boring. 
reborn. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. See, now that hasn't changed in 10 plus years. <laughs> nope. I still make fun of sedimentary rocks and I don't know enough about igneous and metamorphic to make fun of those. <laughs> oh, despite taking Igmet, that's great. Um, <laughs> I, I did not take Igmet, thank you. I was a oh, geophysicist. I know, but I thought you did anyway. No, that was. I, I did not. That was a different geophysicist that I knew. I don't ask me why they would want to do that to themselves, but they did. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh-huh. any any self-respecting geophysicist would rather take uh, <laughs> electromagnetics too. <laughs> or modern physics then chemistry mm-hmm. yeah exactly and by chemistry i mean igmet because that's all it is um <laughs> so we talked a lot about deltas in class and i thought it would be interesting but really i just have to get the first thing out of the way which is the only thing i want to talk about is that the classification chart for deltas is in itself a delta <laughs> It is. It is a Greek delta. <laughs> so because it is your favorite, a ternary diagram. <laughs> so I draw this on the board, and I was like, "Here's the delta classification chart," and I draw it because I'm doing a new thing in class. It's not a new thing; it's an old thing. I am only lecturing on the chalkboard. I. Love that and oh, want to talk about it a lot more. Great. Good. I do too. Um, but I write, God, I have to be the the worst or the best, I don't know, professor, because as I'm writing this and I'm talking out loud and I'm drawing this and I'm saying, you know, deltas, it depends on the processes that are acting on them as to their shape and this is how we classify them and I draw this and I was like, ah, it's a delta. <laughs> and then I just <laughs> proceed to like laugh for 10 seconds. <laughs> Uh, my husband says it's my greatest superpower that I don't need anyone to laugh at my jokes because I laugh at them. So <laughs> I was like, did anybody else laugh or was it just you? <laughs> There's this one kid in the front that always gives me a pity laugh. So shout out, Riley. Thanks. <laughs> Comes in handy on test time. Oh, I know. Subconsciously, I'm like, oh, thanks for laughing at that Delta joke. And every time I drew it, I had to say it. It was just hilarious to me. <laughs> So if you want to imagine what this diagram looks like, if you're not already overly familiar with ternary diagrams from the last however many years of our show, uh, you draw a triangle or a capital Greek delta. (laughs) And we love ternary diagrams because things are generally too complicated to classify into just two categories, but more than three is just showing off. Exactly. (laughs) This is a totally manageable, manageable Greek letter. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if it was more complicated, we'd have to have, you know, uh, a classification square. That sounds like biology with those genetic squares. Ooh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you get beyond that and you start having to have four-dimensional paper, the, the Delta Tesseract. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking, yeah, I don't like my Greek letters with curves in them, so we're just going to take this Delta and move on. <laughs> but the I mean, Delta I- Z. <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Did you say Delta C? Because that is part of this. (laughs) So what is, what are the axes or the the points of this classification scheme? I'm going to make you do this because you made that snotty sedimentary rocks comment. I mean, what are you going to, (laughs) if somebody says, you know, what's a Delta? Obviously, your first 
question or your first answer is, you know, the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet, right? Um. <laughs> right. The fourth letter of the Greek alphabet uh, mm-hmm. or change in something. Mm-hmm. And eventually you might get to something about where a river meets the ocean. It's this kind of foot of sediment that the river deposits when you go from mid-energy to low-energy environments. Great. Okay. So that's fantastic. But as is in the world, <laughs> there are different forces that act on that pile of sediment. This is my definition of a delta is it's a pile of sediment. <laughs> that's what I wrote on the board. Okay. Pile of sediment. <laughs> and it, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is where a, it's where a river meets an open body of water um, because you can get deltas in lakes too. Um, we'll talk about those in a minute. But what processes act on that pile of sediment determines the shape. So it's not, <laughs> it's not um, unrelated that a delta is shaped like a triangle, usually. <laughs> right? Like that's, right. <laughs> that's why it got its name. Um, <laughs> and that's because when, if you imagine a river hitting the ocean, and it's because of that change in all those, you've got this confined channel that has certain velocity parameters, and then you go into an open ocean. So you slow way down the velocity, and it just can't, it doesn't have the same capacity, and it dumps out its sediment. But in an ocean, there's lots of other things that are happening too, like waves and tides. And those are the corners of our the vertices, if you will, not corners, <laughs> of our delta diagram. I've got a pile of sediment delivered to an open body of water from a river. What is the dominant process? Is it the river? Is it waves? Or is it tides? And that's the Galloway's classification scheme for deltas, essentially. Right. And the fundamental thing I think about deltas, and when you're looking at what the delta is shaped like is remembering that at the end of the day, mass and energy must be conserved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. That's very much the mathematical side. That's the modeler looking at this saying, how am I going to figure out these processes? I don't know if that's how the geologist looks at it necessarily. Not necessarily, um, but I think it depends on what type of geologist you are. I'm trying to be more of a um, like physics of sedimentation geologist. So yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you've got a river, which is a relatively high energy thing, mm-hmm. uh, like so you've got you know some amount of flow that's going through a narrow channel, relatively narrow, uh, like say the Mississippi River, that is going to take a little while when that uh, channel hits the ocean for it to slow down. You're moving a lot of water with a lot of energy. And so it's going to be kind of like that kid that's going down the, the slide <laughs> at the water park, and they hit the top of the pool at the bottom and just kind of skip across. <laughs> oh. They've got a lot of energy, and they're coming out of a small channel into a big pool, and it takes them a while to go out there and stop. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so think about the sediment grains as the kid and the process at the bottom of the slide as what's dominating. <laughs> so Delta is a pile of kids. <laughs> oh man, that's super great. Um, yes, that's a great way to describe that. 
so that winds up looking, um, if you know the shape of Louisiana and you look at that Mississippi Delta, that specific Delta is called a bird foot Delta because it looks like a bird's foot. <laughs> right. Right. So these are kind of narrow, projecty looking things that, right. you know, it, look kind of like a peninsula because it's generally what they are uh right yeah exactly now in the case of the mississippi there's a lot of other stuff going on to make it look like that mostly because we're keeping it looking like that because we're making the mississippi river flow where we tell it to flow not where it wants to flow right so that bird foot delta which is like a leg and a foot <laughs> is artificially long but it would still be shaped like that were it closer to land and like the old deltas in the mississippi are kind of shaped like that too so any and we'll get to old deltas because that's one of the cooler processes of deltas oh yes that's true so any fluvial dominated delta sort of looks like that kind of like a lollipop i guess yeah yeah you can say that. <laughs> so, so that's... Shannon, you said the word fluvial, and we've also said the words alluvial. <sighs> can we explain those? They're all the same. River, stream, fluvial, alluvial. <laughs> okay. So fluvial, <laughs> alluvial, things going from a high-energy environment getting barfed out. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Technically, if you want to say alluvial, that's talking about the sediment... And fluvial is talking about the water. I feel like lots of geologists who aren't super nerds, super um, etymology nerds, would use those interchangeably. That seems to be what I've seen people do. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't want to say, like, no, only, you know, only if you're very particular do you not interchange those. Mm, yeah, you hear them interchanged a lot. So, But also, if you listen to this podcast, you're probably particular. <laughs> you wouldn't still be listening. Hopefully about typesetting, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I called someone out for their kerning on a sign they made the other day, and they looked at me like, yeah, like I was that person that would call someone out for saying alluvial when they meant fluvial. <laughs> the words are there for a reason. I know. I was like, your R and your N are totally run together. you got to fix that. Um, great. So that's one part yeah. of the triangle. <laughs> and obviously, okay, so. rivers all are shaped differently, right? And so remember, there's a continuum along any of these <laughs> lines between vertexes, right? <laughs> right. And then there's this fictitious point in the center, <laughs> the imaginary <laughs> delta. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that is equally dominant. <laughs> it's the unicorn delta. <laughs> Right. So as you go down the right side of this equilateral triangle, delta, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you get to a tidally dominated delta. And this is cool because as the tides are going up and down, the water line is moving in and out a lot, changing where deposition's happening. Yeah. These are really weird. Um, I think... <laughs> I think tidal processes are very interesting. And what's interesting about a tidal delta is that it's not one pile of sediment. It's a bunch of different piles of sediment. <laughs> right. 
It's a bunch of lowercase deltas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So you've got this pile of sediment. And if tides are the thing that are dominating on, or the dominant process occurring on these sediments, those are, you know, daily in and out, monthly really big in and out. And so this is common in an estuary situation. And that's a word, tidally dominated delta probably doesn't get thrown around a lot, but estuary does a lot. And that is where you have a river that's meeting the ocean. And the ocean is actually, there's a gradation between freshwater of the river and then ocean water and then, or, and salt water, and then you hit the open ocean. So the ocean is sort of influxing up the river channel because you have that daily in and out. So there's a large mixing zone um, before you get to the open ocean of salt and fresh water. Yeah, and biologically, that's an interesting place. Yes. Uh, sedimentologically, that's an interesting place. And I think they're probably very complicated to work in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, what's cool about them is that because they're so biologically interesting, it's neat to be able to look at estuaries today and say there is a very specific set of life forms that can live in this salinity here. And then as you go closer, you know, up, up the river channel, okay, well, now our salinity's changed a little bit. The life forms are very specific to this salinity range. Okay, great. You can see that today and see where the ocean is and where the river is. But what's cool is when those sort of organisms get locked into the rock record as fossils, you can also see that. So you know exactly where you are in ancient estuary systems based on the salinities that certain organisms were able to live in. So this is actually really good. The biology of estuary systems are really good markers for ancient environments. Right. And I'm, I'm fascinated by tidally dominated processes anyway, mm -hmm. just because there's so many times, you know, there's like, there's daily tides, there's yeah. tides on a couple week time scale, there's tides on orbital time scales. Mm -hmm. I would love to see a study about uh, estuarine deltas on, you know, Milankovitch cycle time scale. Like, okay, I, I, so I'm sure there's some really cool things out there. There is. So if you're just looking, and this is just on a beach, but I mean, this could be for like a tide-dominated delta too. You know, you have tidal bundles. There are these now, today, there are these 28-day bundles of sediment that are tidally dominated. And the bounding sequences of those are, you know, the ebb and flood, or ebb and flood are the daily ones, but the spring and neap tides that you have. And so you see these packages, but those packages over geologic time have changed in size because of the orbital parameters associated with the moon and Earth's rotation. How cool is that? <laughs> yes. And it's <laughs> it's one of the, it's kind of like the uh, where you have the rainstorms preserved in fossils. Yeah. Like it's a daily record a of daily something record and the record of the tidal system isn't 28 days like our lunar system today it was like smaller in the past or you know it, well actually they were bigger in the past how cool is that and also i like tides 
well, like and dislike tides, because when you start building instruments that are sensitive enough, that becomes one of your signal sources. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool to look at like solid body tides. Like how can a planet be affected by tides? But it is, which we've talked about numerous times. Cause yeah. Yes. The place it's you're really sitting cool. right now is six feet higher or lower than it was in the last 24 hours, most likely. So cool. <laughs> but also but we digress yes correct that's correct but these deltas are really weird and they're the least delta looking of the deltas i would say just because that big pile of sediment is getting swashed back and forth daily monthly and so yeah it's just a bunch of little sand islands you know where they made the the man-made island that looks like the palm tree huh <laughs> yes it looks kind of like that. <laughs> that is what the what Galloway's original drawing looks like. That's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> right. So work your way over to the other vertice, and you get the most delta-y of the deltas. <laughs> the cupsate delta. Yes. So uh, this delta, yeah, it's very delta-y looking. Waves and tides, two different things, right? Because tides are gravity and waves are, even though topography does play into tides, right? But waves are a less predictable thing that more has to do with weather and it could be topography as well. And you do have waves that generally come from a direction, but that direction can change depending on what time of year it is or anything like that. So wave-dominated deltas get smeared out along the shore, basically, due to processes like longshore drift. And so their pile of sand gets basically redistributed back to the mainland. And they kind of grow outward where the river meets the ocean is kind of a point, And then those piles of sediments get redistributed on either side of that river mouth. And I kind of think of these as the waves are, so a tidal cycle, you know, is days at the minimum. Mm -hmm. Waves are more like that 10 second period kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And though tides have a lot of energy, they don't move large volumes of water fast. They move large volumes of water slow. Right. Waves are higher energy, so they're moving a lot of sediment, whereas the tidal deltas, they kind of drop it wherever at the time. Right. Uh, but yeah, these are really doing some some work. And, you know, I mean, storms change the shape of all of these deltas, right? But storm waves on wave-dominated delta, it's sort of the same process, just a larger a larger scale. I would think that storms would destroy... River-dominated deltas, I've seen that. We visited some of the islands off of the delta uh, before and after Katrina. (laughs) Some of them we couldn't visit because they were gone after Katrina. Um, And also in a tide-dominated delta, you get a storm come in. It's really going to redistribute that sediment, and less so with a wave-dominated delta because that's what it's been doing the whole time anyway. So, It's also key to remember that everywhere has tide, everywhere has waves, and everywhere has river output. Mm -hmm. So it's never a purely one type or the other right exactly so the the side shared between rivers and waves on this ternary diagram you go from 
It says cupsate, but I want to call it cuspate. <laughs> I think that's I. When I read it, I cuspate makes more sense because that's a mathematical term. Uh-huh. It looks cu- cuspate. I think that the uh, textbook that your ternary diagram from it is has wrong. a typo. I think so too. Um, if you'll notice, my PowerPoint says cuspate. <laughs> So I'm going to say cuspate because that is the shape. Yes. And I didn't even notice it until you said cuspate. And I was like, oh, that's what it says. Yeah. That's cuspate. So that's the wave, wave dominated. And then you, as you go towards the continuum, along the continuum towards rivers, it becomes lobate and then elongate. So yeah, just depends on your wave direction, the topography of the ocean floor and the, um, and the beach. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then there's one of my favorite words in deltaic talk. Yes. Because it sounds medical. Mm-hmm. Do you know where I'm going with this one? I don't. Where are you? Where are you? Oh, oh, yes. I think so. <laughs> a mm-hmm. vulse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. That's what I thought. I mean, it kind of is yes. medical. Like, it's a complete redistribution of the internal yes. workings of... <laughs> Of the Delta, right? <laughs> and just like the medical connotations of a vulse, this is, yeah, it's a violent rerouting of the normal flow of things. Right. So all rivers undergo avulsion, um, meandering rivers more so than braided rivers, but braided rivers do on a very tiny, tiny scale. And avulsing is just a change in direction of the channel. And why that happens is because the earth is lazy and it wants to expend the less, the least amount of energy to do a thing. In this case, the thing is transporting sediment. Delta is a big pile of sediment. So you're going to pile up sediment and eventually the energy needed to run that river up that pile of sediment is more than the earth wants to expend. (laughs) And so that channel says, see you later. I'm going over here where the gradient is much greater. And with less energy, I can spew my pile of sediment elsewhere. Yeah, so the delta wants steep gradients to mm-hmm. efficiently move sediment. It's so successful, it builds out this long, like the bird foot delta. Uh, that gradient goes down, like you just said, and... It's going to go somewhere else, and this is not necessarily, you know, think, well, as the gradient builds up, it's going to start carving a new channel. Uh, This is a violent process. Right, exactly. So it can't carve a new channel into that pile of sediment. Um, In order to do that, like the way canyons get formed, there's usually some kind of uplift to go along with that. So it just, there's not enough force in that river to carve down through that channel. And so, yeah, it will one day move. <laughs> and the, yeah. this is this is why we've kept the Mississippi routed because there would suddenly be a lot of towns with oh, yeah. no river. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the Mississippi, this can be a whole 18 shows, um, but we can talk about the... <laughs> Because as you said before, these old deltas are really cool. We have really good maps of the old deltas of the Mississippi. And the Mississippi wants to go down the Atchafalaya River. I just want to say it because it's real fun to say. <laughs> but that would move it significantly to the west. Um, and it will. Like, it will do that one day. No question. 
And a big, actually, my class is going to do a debate on this. A big deal is, do we keep it where it is? Because that's where we have all our shipping channels and everything. Or do we move everyone out of the way and let the Mississippi do what it wants to do anyway? Um, and it's almost done it a couple of times in the past. And I think we'll save those exciting stories for a different show, though. Oh, yes. The... <laughs> The geoengineering behind what we're doing is fascinating and one day going to bite us very badly. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's really neat. But um, if you want to look at wave-dominated deltas, you can see this evolution, too. It's harder to see in tide-dominated deltas. Um, but my students found this picture of the Rio Grijalva River and well... Rio means river, the Rio Grijalva in Mexico. And isn't it cool how you can see these different like wave dominated lines and like the cutoffs of the old evulsion channels in this satellite picture? Yeah, it looks like if you took a piece of fabric and kind of crumpled it up some. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so those are all that redistributing of that sediment. And then it just change of shape this is the cuspate part right <laughs> as that violent moving of that channel happens and you just start redistributing sediment in a different spot it's really cool looking it is mm -hmm. so that's g-r-i-j-a-l-v-a you should look it up on google earth and look at the cool pictures of that wave dominated delta absolutely so and I remember in sedimentology looking at, you know, trying to outline different deltas of the Mississippi when we were having this discussion, and then them talking about going and doing geology of where all these deltas used to be that are now rock. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, okay, this, these are piles of sedimentary rock that are, they can really tell us a story. And they happen at all kinds of scales. Like you said, you can even get these things in lakes. Right. So... As you explained in the beginning, John, it's just a difference in essentially fast flow going into slow flow, right? So a river going into a still lake is the same change in fluid dynamics. And we call those uh, Gilbert deltas. Um, it's this fluvial delta. It's got really coarse stuff. Like the Mississippi is a really mud-dominated delta. Um, the other ones have a lot more sand well, the other ones we've been talking about have, have more sand. But these Gilbert deltas you'll find um, in these freshwater lakes. Actually, this is part of, we see these in part of my study area in the Colorado River, because as the Colorado River turned out of the Grand Canyon and went to make its way to the Salton Sea, it filled up a series of lakes. And they're huge, uh, very coarse-grained dipping sediments and it's dipping sediments you can trace them they just pile outwards outwards and outwards on top of each other and that's a gilbert delta yeah so the same process different scale yes i would say what different time or well, similar time scale probably yeah it could yeah um i think maybe a little shorter maybe a little bit shorter it definitely probably doesn't deposit for as it's not as long lived as ocean deltas probably so right mm -hmm. yeah but the actual just initial deposition might be a little bit faster in a gilbert delta yeah so my big question then 
is at what point do you stop considering things transported by water to be sediments? Hmm. What do you mean? Well, it happens to be the topic oh. of the very strategically <laughs> chosen Fun Paper Friday. Yay! I'm so sad. I was so deep into imagining this Gilbert Delta, I didn't understand the segue. How embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so ashamed. Um, did you find this paper? I did. Great. This is the I, I am paper. on a fun paper finding role here. You said you were, so I was really excited to ask you to send one. And this might be my favorite one we've done. <laughs> so, Great Big Boulders I Have Known by Beatty. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so good. I mean, this is a treasure trove. So, this was in geology. Um, the journal from 1989 <laughs> and it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> it's big boulders that this dude took pictures of 10, 20 years apart. <laughs> They're anomalous. If you are a geologist listening to this, numerous field camps go to the white mountains of California, which is where, uh, old Chet found all his boulders that he's known. <laughs> and, this paper to me, this is a paper that could not be written now. Now it would be oh, something no. about, you know, real-time GPS tracking of <laughs> the boulder, which I love because hopefully we'd be building those devices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, yep. But this to me is like the classic <laughs> career structural geologist paper. It so is because it's literally this dude walking around he found these massive boulders that are on these alluvial fans, and he did what any geologist would do, was he took a ton of pictures of a lot of them, also named them dumb things. <laughs> Moby Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Spray-painted one, which it turns out he found 10 years later, still spray-painted, so he knows it was the same boulder, but yet it had moved kilometers away. <laughs> I mean, it takes a geologist to have the patience <laughs> to go out one day and spray paint this giant rock, <laughs> and then a decade later, go back, go to the oh. same spot, and go, it's not here. Well, it must have gone downhill, and start walking until they find it. Oh, such a geologist thing to do. And he found it two kilometers below its original position. He's got pictures of it, said it was unmistakable with that green paint he spray painted on it. <laughs> I did enjoy that he said he put an entire can of I green know. spray paint on it. I know. <laughs> I love it. And lots of people would be like, that's outrageous. Guess what? That green spray paint's gone today. Like, it's gone. It's okay. <laughs> and you know what? He did this in the 50s, so it was probably leaded. Uh, yeah, probably was. That's probably why it lasted 10 years. No kidding. <laughs> Thanks, Chet. Um, <laughs> so I love that he says, obviously, you know, a lot of these. So what's anomalous about these things are that they're giant boulders on top of these alluvial fans. And sometimes they occur in sort of clusters. Sometimes they're just singular boulders. Um, you can tell, it says it's hard to sort of tell their provenance kind of even though it seems that a bunch of them are from igneous batholiths further up 
the drainage, which makes total sense. Um, <laughs> and looking at them on these fans, they just look weird and anomalous. So why are these huge boulders there? And how do they move? And all of this, because he's talking about, well, it'd be nice to see how they move to be able to know how far they've moved. He's caught this one, as he says, in the act. And that required a bit of luck. <laughs> right. And when we say anomalously large, I'm afraid that you're thinking of something, you know, the size of an SUV. Mm-hmm. These are like 17 meters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, which, for those of you that don't speak meters, that's about 55 feet in Yankee units. <laughs> These are massive rocks, and not things that you would think would just move. Right. And this goes back to our, how do you move big piles of sediment? Which is why, this is another reason why this paper wouldn't be written today, is it's just this guy talking about some ideas. <laughs> it's just an ideas paper. His green spray-painted rock, that's the only data in this paper. (laughs) And I love that at the end of the paper, after the references, they chose to insert a comment from one of the reviewers. (laughs) And the reviewer's comment says, unusual mix of disciplines used in an unusual way, guaranteed to draw comments. (laughs) I wonder if that was in the original... I hope that was in the original printing. <laughs> uh, I think it was. I mean, I think so, too. That's I think that's what I pulled, so surely that wasn't just added later. Um, I think it's cool, though, and I also appreciate one of the things that was super scary for me, and I know it's super scary for a lot of new or would-be academics, is the thought of not having enough ideas, <laughs> right? And everyone's like, it's fine. You'll get plenty. Okay. When you're in that position, it's really hard to understand where you'll get ideas from (laughs) and where these magically appear and how it happens. But it's papers like this. This guy is freely giving away ideas, right? Several of his paragraphs end with, this is something that could be investigated. This is another thing that could be investigated. And this is why you read... (laughs) This is why you read the literature, folks. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, is it just a lot of flooding? Is it earthquakes? Is it some combination of these things? Mm-hmm. Uh, are these, like, semi-solid debris flows? This was kind of cool, and I love this idea, because he said some of these rocks are clustered together. And so, obviously, you can float these rocks with just a little bit of fluidized sediment underneath them. That's the hallmark of a debris flow, right? Um, But maybe you can also float huge blocks of sediment, like a raft, essentially, where the raft is essentially undisturbed, floats down on this debris flow, and then just gets deposited. Totally could see that happening. Yeah. So he explains those groups of boulders like that. The other cool part, which you probably skipped over, because you don't like sedimentary rocks, was (laughs) he talks about these within the White Mountains, how this happens all over the place. But there's a whole bunch of very jointed sedimentary sort of bedrock, and you don't see those boulders there because they're really jointed, and they probably get broken up a lot faster than these igneous sources for these giant boulders. 
see the mechanical weathering show. Exactly. I thought that was and really cool, too. I also thought it was really cool that he also managed to pull in carbon dating. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at dead plants in layers for some of these debris flows, trying to figure out how often does this happen? Like, could I catch one of these things? And then saying, well, they're 300, 350 years mm-hmm. of recurrence interval. You know, we think. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, okay, so maybe, uh, he says, I know this is a long human time scale. So such a recurrence period seems long on the human time scale, but it is more than adequate to allow for building of the fans by debris flow deposition over the past few million years. Mm-hmm. So again, taking that geologist view of I know this <laughs> only happens once every 300 years, but over a million years, that's like every day. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And he's gone out. I love this part too. And measured the volumes of some of like the recent debris flows. And then he has scaled that to these other, these large flows to also get some sort of um, frequency of flow deposits. And this is stuff people do now in Google Earth all the time is that they just look at pictures in these high, um, high relief areas and you can toggle back and forth between the ages of the satellite photos and count landslides. But before that, it used to be a good excuse to go to the field. Yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. <laughs> Eventually, you got to go out there. <laughs> right. But it is. It's so cool. So he talks about, well, what triggered those mass flows? You know, was it big rains or was it earthquakes? He does bring so many different disciplines together here. And there are, I don't know, just a cursory reading. I could think of 10 different projects to do off of this paper, which I'm sure have been done since this was 1989. But you know what I mean? Like, it's a beautifully written paper. It is. It's, like I said, to me, it's one of those classic geology style papers that you just don't see anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's not one graph. There's not, not one, one section about instruments. I mean, I mean, this is coming from somebody who makes their living designing instruments. <laughs> um, and who hates rocks, but. <laughs> this is just a good, solid, boots-on-the-ground geology ideas paper. Mm-hmm. Super fun. And it generated, I think this is important, too, that we should all strive to be, uh, to be scientists like, Chester Beatty because he freely gave like someone should do this someone should do this someone should do this like that's how science should be as opposed to don't do this you don't want to I don't want to get scooped so I'm not going to talk about my work at all you know that's too bad yes because ideas are cheap executions everything yeah mm-hmm. exactly we th- there's so much we don't understand it's it's fine right Exactly. It is fine. Um, this was super cool. I'm 1,000% going to assign this in every class from now on. <laughs> and it looks like, from what I can find, uh, Chester, let's see, was born in 1925 and passed away in 2000. Oh, wow. Well, thanks, Chester. 
and retired in 1990. So this was a year before his retirement. Oh, see? He was just getting all those ideas out there, hoping somebody was going to roll with them. Yep. Well, and here we are, uh, 22 years later, Mm -hmm. talking about this. uh, Exactly. Partially all because it has a catchy title. (laughs) Um, Did you say 22 years later? I did say 22 years later. Well, know. after after he passed away. Sorry. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, um, sir, <laughs> nineteen eighty nine was way more than twenty two years ago. <laughs> yeah, you just wanted to remind you. <laughs> Excellent. I have already been. Uh, this will remain nameless, but uh, someone has already told me uh, while I was recounting some computer stuff of uh, wishing that they'd also been around in the early days of computing. (laughs) That one hurt. And you said I wasn't born in the flipping forties, right? (laughs) Might as well have been, right? Uh, I guess so. If you had a MySpace account, it's all the same. (laughs) Oh yeah. Everybody had Tom as a friend. That's exactly right. Who's this Tom guy? Yeah. Well, if uh, <laughs> you would like to send us your observations of great big boulders that you have known and spray painted, we would like to see how far they've moved. Or you can friend us on MySpace. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> I am Calamity Shan at no. Um, <laughs> I was, but <laughs> show at don'tpanicgeocast.com is how you can get a hold of us. <laughs> We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can go to Slack and we hang out in the software underground, the Don't Panic channel. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.